Just give us one hour and we'll help you change the way you think about happiness. Harvesting Happiness with Lisa Cypress Kamen is a fresh talk radio approach promoting happiness from the inside out. Happiness is a choice and happiness can be cultivated and harvested. Each week, Lisa shines her light on well-being and global human flourishing by presenting a diverse and proactive collection of the greatest thinkers and doers who have devoted their lives to creating a better world in which to live. As a filmmaker, positive psychology coach, author, professor, and change agent specializing in the field of happiness, Lisa Cybers Kamen is widely recognized as an expert in the field. On the show, she also focuses on military families and service personnel returning with PTSD, traumatic brain injury and other post-deployment civilian life reintegration issues. So, let's spend some time getting to the heart of the matter on Harvesting Happiness on toginet.com. And now, here's your host, Lisa Cypress-Kamen. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening wherever you are. Welcome to Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio, where we explore the very serious business of happiness, sustainable well-being, and human flourishing. We are not talking about that annoying yellow smiley face. No, no, no. We are talking about something much deeper and critical to the success of humanity. Authentic happiness is not selfish, egotistical, or narcissistic. In fact, it is essential in order for humankind to thrive. Sustainable happiness is important because it not only elevates our own well-being locally, but also contributes to collective global flourishing. The achievement of a happy life is not only positively good for us, it is constructively good for those around us. In short, happiness matters. Happiness comes from the heart, and this show is most definitely all about the heart. If you hear something that strikes your fancy, please tweet at us with the hashtag Harvesting Happiness. Today we are talking about the science of miracles and angels. And in the studio with me today is Dr. Bernie Siegel. For those of you out there of a certain age, myself being one of them, his multi-million best-selling first book, Love, Medicine, and Miracles, was published in 1986. He has since been the author of multiple other books, including Book of Miracles, which is now available in paperback, 100 Exercises for the Soul, and 365 Prescriptions for the Soul. Uh, Bernie lives with his wife in Connecticut and has five grown children and several grandchildren. Bernie, thanks for being with us today. My pleasure. I have to interrupt uh, you immediately because one of the things, see, the terminology you're using, um, the harvesting happiness, you're saying in your way what I learned from this book of miracles. And I always share with people, this is not just about incurable illnesses. I mean, the, the subtitle is Inspiring True Stories of Healing, Gratitude, and Love. So all those things. But when do they happen? They, and it's what you're talking about when you talk about harvesting happiness. That when these people chose, I say they chose life, but they chose happiness for everyone. They chose what was life-enhancing. And I always quote the biblical line, I place before you life and death, good and evil. Choose life. Yes. Because when you choose life, you're benefiting all of creation. When you choose what's good, uh, then there are a lot of people who may be left out of what's good for you. So <laughs> in the same way, when you say harvesting happiness, your definition of it is much like choosing life. And yes. when you do that, then all these amazing coincidences happen. But they're not coincidences because they're, in a sense, creating a rhythm. Again, Norman Vincent Peale, uh, he became a friend of mine. And I grew up in New York, and, and his church is in Manhattan. And I said to him one day, you know, I can't take New York anymore. The noise, the people, it's just driving me nuts. And he said, Bernie, it isn't about the noise or the people. It's about the rhythm. So it isn't whether you're quiet 
or noisy. He said there are many people who love New York because of all the people and all the noise and all the energy, and they are very creative. So he said, you have to find the rhythm. And that has always stayed with me, that we each need to find that rhythm in our life. And again, when you find that, you meet the people who you're supposed to meet. The things happen that are supposed to happen because now you're on your choice. I mean, your correct choice, your authentic choice. And so the harmony is there because the consciousness is what creates this. And why I do a lot of work with dreams and drawings because that's how the, the consciousness can speak to us when it has a hard time talking, but when the conscious mind is turned off, then the deeper level comes forward and can speak to us in symbol. And when we talk about symbols, let's talk about miracles. What is a miracle? We think well, we know what a miracle is, but... Yeah, I, there are... Well, life is a miracle. I mean, I agree with Einstein um, because... You can't explain what, you know, what we have. I mean, how can you create life? But the thing to me that's fascinating, I've been discussing this with one of our sons who he sort of communicates with (laughs) creation, you know. He comes up with these wonderful thoughts and ideas. But just think about it. See, one of the sentences as I was reading the Bible said, you know, we are created in God's image. But it doesn't mean we look like God. What I'm saying is that what God is made of, we are made of. So we are made out of God and children of God. But again, what do I mean by that? Think of our universe. We're sitting on a planet. Do we have any idea what else is out there? No. You know, we're just part of something. But there could be 10 more Earths, you know, and people living on them. But we have no idea. Um, And the same is true going within our bodies. Um, You know, if you were a cell in the liver, you're doing your job every day. Do you know what's going on in the heart (laughs) or the kidney (laughs) or the brain? I mean, you're just part of, you know, that creation. And that's why I say it's miraculous. But built into it, is the ability to create what I call miracles. There, there is our potential, that our creator has love, intelligence, consciousness, and energy, and uses them properly. So I always say, if you cut your finger, you don't bleed to death. That's a miracle. How does it know to stop the bleeding and heal? See? And a bacteria, that always impresses me that you dump antibiotics on bacteria and they alter their genetic makeup and become resistant to the antibiotic. Now, I would say that's a hell of a miracle. Look what they've done. Um, And so, again, I see creation as a miracle. And because, again, it's things you can't explain, you know, that you say, how did that happen? I don't know how we got here. Astronomers understand, quantum physicists are open-minded. It's easier talking to them than the doctors. You see, because, well, this, like, I hope you don't mind. Let me just mention one more thing. Because you mind. see, you, I you love have, <laughs> if you get over an incurable illness, what does a doctor call it? It's a spontaneous remission or it's a miracle. So you're lucky, you know, good for you. But in Solzhenitsyn's book, Cancer Ward, there's an intuitive wisdom in Solzhenitsyn because he had cancer. In it, one of the men comes into the ward and says to the others, oh, I found this book in the medical library. Look here. It says there are cases of self-induced healing. Wow. That, Imagine I, that, that right? <laughs> jumped off the page at me. Self-induced healing, see? And he goes on to say it's as though a rainbow-colored butterfly fluttered out of a great open book and they all held up their foreheads and cheeks for its healing touch as it flew past. And again, that symbol, see, what is the butterfly? A symbol of transformation. What is the rainbow? Like Norman Vincent Peale. It's the rhythm, the harmony. See, every color literally has an emotional meaning. And so when everything in your life is in order, 
then self-induced healing can occur. And this is something I've seen. I went home and I left my troubles to God, and the cancer disappears. See, I bought a dog. I put in a backyard wildlife habitat. I laughed more, and I took some vitamins. And the letter from this lady, and who expected to die in two months, ends with, I didn't die, and now I'm so busy, I'm killing myself. Help, where do I go from here? And I told her to take a nap. But, you know, so there are many people who have transformed their life. And I was always impressed with a letter I got from a lawyer because this is a quote from a lawyer. Well, it ends with, well, I'll tell you the whole quote. He said, I came to a conclusion that was eminently reasonable, totally logical, and completely wrong. Because while learning to think, I almost forgot how to feel. See? And he had a 5% chance of living two years. He found my book in a used bookstore while his car was in the garage being fixed. And he read it and changed his life. Cancer disappeared. And his doctor was not interested in knowing what he did. To me, that's the saddest part of all, that I learned to talk to my patients who didn't die when they were supposed to, who did better than expected. And I'd say, hey, what happened? What would you do? And they always had a story. And the psychologists and psychiatrists understand this. I mean, Carl Manning, the psychiatrist, when I wrote my first book that you mentioned, Love, Medicine, and Miracles, I sent it to him for a comment, you know, and uh, his opinion. And he wrote back saying, Bernie, I was just about to write a book called Ten Hopeless Cases. These are ten people who are supposed to be dead. They're alive and well today. But I'm not going to because you just wrote it. And when I wrote articles about my experience with dreams and drawings, which doctors are never taught in medical school, okay, they're never told that Jung interpreted a dream and diagnosed a brain tumor. I think they should be, so they ask patients, you know, what you are aware of. And in the book, when I'm done, remind me to tell you that story. But I sent articles to medical journals. They were returned saying, interesting, but not appropriate. When I sent it to her as appropriate, they came back saying it's appropriate, but it's not interesting. And that's the part, again, that, that is so sad about medicine. I always say it's like having an electrician and a plumber in your house. Each deals with their own thing. The plumber can't fix the you know, electrical problem and the other way around. And doctors are getting like that. You know, They're becoming so specialized that this sentence says it very well. Doctors are trained to treat the result and not the cause. True that. And, and the cause is uh, usually somewhere in the heart, isn't it? And we don't mean, yeah. heart, uh, we don't mean a, a clinical heart illness. We mean an emotional heart illness. Right. Yeah. I mean, a disease. We need to understand that, you know, I was told by doctors, why do you blame your patients? I said, what do you mean? What are you talking about? Well, you keep asking them what's going on in their life. I said, I'm not blaming them. I'm trying to look at why they might be sick at a certain time. See, we have studies now that show the benefits of laughter, of happiness. I mean, you have cancer, laugh six times a day for no reason. You will live longer than somebody in the control group who only laughs if something funny happens. That was a study that well, was done. Well, I will share with you. I will, and, and I believe this, and I will share with you my, I have a, a, an experience of Graves' disease that happened to me when I was in graduate school for psychology. And I was told, get rid of it, get rid of the thyroid, radiate it, go on with your life. And I said, whoa, 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 whoa. Why would I get rid of this body part of mine? And I went on a quest to heal it naturally through meditation, through diet, through attitude, through exercise, through walking my talk. And of course, it went away. It's not an, that's not an accident. It's no. a miracle, but one of my own it, creation. You remind me of a miracle about the same disease in my life. My mother had Graves' disease, was critically ill. She had lost an enormous amount of weight. I mean, yep. for people who don't know, that's a hypothyroid. So it's like your thermostat is turned up to 150 degrees all day long. And the doctor told her, you might not survive a pregnancy. But her mother wanted a grandchild. <laughs> so she stuffed food into my mother to stabilize her weight, and my mother became pregnant and had all kinds of complications and problems and went into labor and couldn't push me out. And the doctor said to her, you, you can't survive a cesarean section. We've got to get that kid out of there. So they pulled me out. And, I mean, this I have to add, because I learned this as an adult. 
because there are no pictures of me in our family album. And my mother said, oh, they didn't hand me a child. They handed me a purple melon. So we took you home and hid you. But I had a grandmother, see, who was capable of loving this purple melon. But then what was the miracle? My mother's hyperthyroidism vanished. It just disappeared after the pregnancy. Now, you can say it's related to her metabolism, to things that happen. But what a gift I became, see. I cured my mother and my grandmother, (laughs) to quote my mother again, pushed everything back where it belonged. So I felt like the most loved (laughs) kid on the planet because my grandmother was massaging me endlessly and pushing things back. And, you know, to let people know that the happiness aspect that aspect of your childhood, if you, you haven't felt loved as a child, it's hard as hell to love yourself and be caring, you know, of yourself when you grow up. Um, and what I realized when I was massaged by a woman for the first time as an adult, I went into a trance. Mm. And... I opened my eyes. I knew what happened. I went back to being an infant because I have a shaved head. A woman's hands for the first time always had been massaged by men. Um, and I know I went back to being the infant. When I opened my eyes, there were six people in the room. I said, what the hell's going on? They said, we thought you had a heart attack or a stroke. You left. You left. We couldn't communicate with you. And I explained to them, I went back to being an infant. That To me, that again, proved that we store our life within us. As Alice Miller said, our childhood is stored up in our body, and someday the body will present its bill. You know, I mean, for me, it wasn't a negative experience because of my grandmother. But let me get back. You know, I mentioned the dream and and, and cancer. One of the stories in the book is a woman who goes to sleep in the night in her dream, A dark-skinned woman appears and says, with an accent, there's a lump in your right breast. You need to have it checked. The woman said, I got up in the morning, feel my breast. Indeed, there's a lump there. So I go to the hospital, and they put her through some tests, and they come in and tell her, you have cancer in your breast. And the doctor who will be taking care of you will be coming into the room in a few minutes. Who do you think walked into the room? Wow. The woman from her dream. Yeah. 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 She was from India, darker skin, the accent, and everything else. And that's the part that, wow, no coincidences. Or meeting, you know, the the other, well, there's a, One other story that I love, because it shows you when you choose life what happens, when you choose to not disturb the happiness of others. Uh, This couple was discharged from the armed forces and decided to drive from the West Coast to the East Coast and make it a vacation as they drove home. But while they're driving, every time they come to a hill, the car slows down, and nobody seems to know what's wrong with the car. See, that's when what impressed me. They didn't say, well, screw everybody. If we slow everybody down, touch yet. We're going to enjoy ourselves and drive. They decided to drive at night so there wouldn't be a problem. And one night, they're driving through Nevada in the middle of the night. They pull over when a car comes up behind them and they're on a hill. So they pull off the road and the car pulls off the road. And they got a bit nervous. You know, they're in the middle of nowhere and somebody's stopping. But the guy came over and said, I am one of the original designers of the Pontiac Le Mans, which you are driving. I know what's wrong with your car. It is a hose that we installed to suck excess fuel and conserve the fuel, but it's draining too much. And in five minutes, he fixed that car. He plugged the tube and fixed that car. And they drove home, you know, had a good vacation then. But how do you meet this man in the middle of the night in Nevada? I mean, what are the odds <laughs> of that? <laughs> no, it's yeah. amazing. And, and, amazing. And those are the things, mystical stories where you're choking to death. Your husband died a few weeks before. 
you can't call for help or get help, and you sit down expecting to die. And you get a wallop against your back, which sends you flying across the room, and the food is dislodged, and you start breathing again. Now, who did that? Yeah, uh, her husband's spirit in some way was able to accomplish that. And that's why these things, I just say, open your mind. That's all I ask people to do. Open your mind. Don't say, I can't accept that. You can say, I can't explain it. Okay, fine. We don't know how we got here. As I said, creation is a mystery. But accept what you experience. That's what I've learned. I don't let beliefs limit my life. If I experience something, hey, it happened. I believe in it. I know it can happen. And I use the word potential all the time. You know, that potential is built into us. You know, I keep saying our creator loves us because the potential to survive is built into us. You know, I um well, you don't know, but I'll tell you, I, I, I do a lot of coaching in addiction and trauma recovery. Uh, uh, I mean, lots every week. And I sit with clients and I, and I observe their suffering and they share their stories and they ask me, you know, how to fix it, you know? And I said, well, you know, I, I personally am not sure how to fix what you're going through, but I know that if I can love you through your process, that's a far better dose of medicine than anything you can take out of a pill bottle. Well, that's, that's, that is how you fix it. I call it reparenting. You see, why are people addicts? Because they weren't loved. Yeah. That's why they're self-destructive. I always say to doctors and healthcare professionals, it is not stupidity that leads to people being addicts or drinking 12 bottles of soda loaded with sugar. You know, making the bottle smaller and putting a label on it doesn't stop somebody. I mean, in one study I read, 10% of people with lung cancer who have surgery for the cancer go back to smoking, 10%. Now, you'd say, they, don't they realize? Of course they realize smoking. <laughs> well, here, this is even better. I mean, we have a house full of pets. See, what we need is what Schweitzer taught us. Ask your, your clients this question. I'll ask you also. You have to answer okay. this question. After a heavy rain, you're taking a walk, and you notice a lot of worms have been washed onto the sidewalk. What do you do when you come up to them? Oh, I, I and, and this has happened to me recently. I marvel at them, and I step aside to make sure I don't crunch them. Well, what I do and what Schweitzer does or did is pick them up and put them back on the earth. I've been doing that for years and just assuming I'm neurotic. I just can't help it. I do it. And then I read a writing by Schweitzer where he said, if you come out after the rain, pick up the worm, put it back on the earth. And if you see an insect in a puddle, give it a leaf to climb up on. When I read that, is. yeah, I thought, hey, Siegel, you're a good soul. You're not neurotic. And I, again, see, but you can reparent them and make them feel worthwhile so they have that reverence for life. And one young suicidal teenager um, came, you know, was coming to me. And I'll tell you why. You know, I'm a surgeon, but why is a suicidal teenager coming to see me? But one day she said to me, you're my CD. I said, what are you talking about? I'm a CD. She said, you're my chosen dad. Yeah. Well, what I learned to do is, they say, to reparent people. See, the opposite of love is indifference, rejection, and abuse. And that's all the headlines we're reading. You want revenge? Go kill everybody and then kill yourself when you feel guilty. But I learned as a doctor, if I gave people return appointments, ultimately they would realize, why does he keep telling me to come back? Everybody else tells me to get the hell out of here. You know, I'm not doing anything for myself. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and they, you know, they realize he cares about me, so maybe I'm worth something. And then they became like family, if you know what I mean. And they began to take care of themselves because I cared about them. And uh, it really impressed me to watch 
you know, the happiness, the humor, I mean, all these things that, you know, to watch what happened to people. Oh, and one insurance company wrote me and said, you're a surgeon. We do not talk to pay surgeons for talking. Can you imagine <laughs> that? And I wrote them because I'm, you know, not a dumbbell. And I wrote back and I have my sense of humor, too. And I said, if you look at this woman's record, you will see she's been self-destructive. She always has surgery to punish herself. And so I am helping her to find, you know, a new self and love herself and look at the record. See how much money I've saved you in the last year that she hasn't had an operation. And they wrote me a letter saying, okay, keep talking. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my goodness. That's, that is a great story. I want, I, I want to talk to you about how we manage adversity in the sense that suffering comes as part of the human condition. And how can we better help our clients, our friends, and our loved ones understand that alongside with the adversity can live, and I have witnessed this, the joy, the laughter, yeah. the wit, the sarcasm that is part of the healing process from the suffering itself. Well, Victor Frankl, man's search for meaning, to live is to suffer, to survive is to find meaning in the suffering. And when I was starting to help cancer patients and AIDS patients and others with life-threatening illnesses, I did a lot of reading of concentration camp survivors to learn from them what they had learned from their experience. And let me add this, that we don't need to write any more books, folks. They've all been written. Go read them. Because I'm constantly bombarded with books to make comments on. And yes, I think the books are wonderful and have great advice. But they've already been written, if you know what I mean. But, but people never were taught yes. how to survive yes. the suffering. So they had to have it in, in order to <laughs> wake up. But it's, again, what I learned from Joseph Campbell was these words of his, if you're going through hell, stop and ask yourself, what am I to learn from this experience? And that's what I do. If something is happening physically, emotionally, I say, what am I to learn from this? Yeah. And another friend said it in another way that I think is very simple and easy to understand. Because one day when I was not having a good day, she said, Bernie, you get upset if you're hungry. I said, no. What do you do? I get something to eat. She said, all right, then ask yourself what nourishment you need. So when you are suffering, say, what do I need to bring into my life to help me? And that's, again, on my, on my website, there's something called immune-competent personality. See, and the, the, the people who exceed expectations when confronting an illness have that type of personality. They're learning from it. You know, they're not. See, I ask people when they have a problem, how would you describe the problem? Now, it could be a physical illness, emotional problem, lost your job, got a divorce, whatever. How would you describe it? And then words come out. Now, there's a rare small group that says, wake up, call, blessing, new beginning. Terrific. You know, <laughs> you're on your journey. You don't need Siegel. But others will say, pressure. Failure, confusion, draining, roadblock, um, disaster. And then I will say to them, now tell me, what else in your life fits those words? Pressure? Oh, that's my marriage. Failure. My parents committed suicide when I was a child. I must have been a failure as a child. Now, I've seen people who were in pain, all kinds of problems. As soon as that enlightenment happened, they got up and went home to change their life. When I say get up, they didn't go into the hospital. They went home to straighten out their life. Yeah. And a wonderful line from Woody Allen says it also. A depressed guy is rambling on about, you know, the bleak hopelessness of the world. And his friend says to him, what are you doing Saturday night? I'm committing <laughs> suicide. How about Friday night? They and to me, that's what life is about. You may say, I'm committing suicide Saturday. Well, why don't we go have some fun on Friday? And then Saturday, you may say, well, maybe I'll put it off another day. Yeah, exactly. Maybe I'll change my mind. Yeah. 
<laughs> to live oh. in the moment is what happiness is about. I learned that yes. years ago also from one of our kids who I, I mean, he had a bone tumor, which looked like a malignancy, lose your leg, be dead in a year kind of thing. He was eight, seven at the time. And, uh, you know, I'm the doctor. I go home and tell our five kids and my wife what's going to happen to him. <clears throat> and um, the next day he came to me. He said, can I talk to you for a minute, Dad? What is it? You're handling this poorly. That's from a seven-year-old to his father. You're handling this poorly. And he went on to, I mean, really, he was like a psychiatrist at age seven. He said, we're trying to enjoy the day. We're not worried about next year. You want us depressed in our bedrooms. We want to be in the front yard having fun. And I'll tell you, in five minutes, he totally enlightened me. You know, the same thing as Woody Allen was saying. What are you doing Friday night? And um, the kids understand that. I did a lot of children's surgery. I mean, if they had love, you know, they enjoyed the day. They could get through whatever. They were not worried about next year and the treatments. And, and the other is the power of our words. I call it deceiving people into health because I lied to children in, the, in a therapeutic, hypnotic way because I knew they believed my words, so I would lie to them for their benefit. And a simple explanation is like taking an alcohol sponge and rubbing a child's skin and saying, this is numbing your skin, you won't feel the needle. And you'd be yep. amazed at how many kids don't feel the needle, at least a third, uh, because of what you've told them, and they believe in you. And the others will say, oh, I felt it. you know. But it's not the panic, oh, here's a needle kind of thing. But it wasn't so bad. It actually yeah, wasn't so yeah. bad. And, and see, then I could say, well, it was a bad sponge. I'll make sure we have a good one next time. And so, again, you know, they weren't angry at anybody. Or, and I would always tell parents, especially with children, and it happens with adults too. You take a bunch of vitamins, label them anything you want, you know, anti-nausea, hair growing, weight loss. Um, it doesn't matter. And then you give it to your loved one. And watch what happens. It's amazing because they believe in the doctor, their parents, you know, their loved ones, and they have the so-called placebo effect. Our mind is incredible. I mean, it can it cause you trouble, too. Um, but well, the it, mind it, is a terribly noisy place, right? You know, yeah, it, we... <laughs> yeah. Well, what it believes and images, the body believes. See, the body doesn't know it's not doing something if the mind pictures it. Now, I mean, you could take seniors... And again, these things have been done. Tell them to picture lifting weights. And two weeks later, their muscles are stronger than the group who didn't picture it. But when you're getting into medical treatment, then it can be a disaster. You know, if the devil is giving you poison is your image, you got a lot of problems ahead of you. Um, if you see it as a gift from God, yeah, you can go through treatments, including surgery, chemotherapy, radiation, have no side effects. Because it's a gift from God. And, and it's the yeah. belief system. We are out of time, Bernie. And I, 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 I beg you to come back because we have a lot to discuss. <laughs> well, you if you that? send enough money, I'll come back. <laughs> How about if I send uh, the riches of love, which is, what, which is what I am sending you right now. Thank you. That's, Thank you. I love Thank that. You. Thank you. And... Um, to learn more, please visit BernieSiegelMD.com, on Facebook, BernieSiegel75, and on Twitter, the handle is BernieSiegelMD. And I have to share one thing with you, Bernie. I've been doing this show for four years, and in the history of the show, we have never broken from our format. We have always followed four 12-minute segments, and today, because I could not bear to break away from our moment um, the producer just let me go straight through. So thank you. Yeah, I was wondering because it seemed like a long 12 minutes. <laughs> it, was, it was. It was. It was. It was the longest well, 12 minutes ever. <laughs> a quickie is that, you see, when you lose track of time, you're in a trance state. It's literally the healthiest state you can be in. So I always say to people, find your chocolate ice cream and go live it. And if you lose track of time, you're giving yourself an incredible gift. Well, today you were my chocolate ice cream. And thank I, you. I, and I really am appreciative. So have a beautiful day. Bless and I you. really do want to know how you are. So we have to continue this conversation. All right. Bye. Bye-bye. 
We know that life is tough and that happiness can and does live along with adversity. We'll be right back to explain how on Harvesting Happiness with Lisa Cypress Kamen on toginet.com. Like us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and on Twitter at HH Talk Radio. Lisa returns with more of Harvesting Happiness following this short break. Nothing gives happiness like a free gift. Lisa Cypress Kamen has made her first ebook, Got Happiness Now? Eight Keys to Unlocking a Joyful Life, available at no cost to everyone. Unwrap your complimentary copy now by visiting www.harvestinghappinesstalkradio.com. Like what you hear on Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio? Subscribe to us on iTunes and get your weekly dose of joy downloaded free and easily to your computer or portable device. That's Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio on iTunes. Welcome back to Harvesting Happiness with Lisa Cypress Kamen on Toginet, the show dedicated to promoting happiness because happiness is a choice and happiness can be cultivated and harvested. So let's get back to it. It's Harvesting Happiness on toginet.com. And now back to your host, Lisa Cypress Kamen. Welcome back to Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio. We are talking about the science of miracles and calling on angels to help us understand life, help us understand science, and perhaps a bit of the unknowable. With me in the studio is Matthew Fox and Rupert Sheldrake. Matthew is an internationally acclaimed spiritual theologian, Episcopal priest, and activist who holds... Whoops... Starting over. Um, with me in the studio today is Matthew Fox, who is an internationally acclaimed spiritual theologian and Episcopal priest, as well as an activist who was a member of the Dominican Order for 34 years. He holds a doctorate in the history of theology and spirituality. He's written 30 books and translated, been translated into more than 48 languages and has received numerous awards. Among them are Original Blessing, The Coming of the Cosmic Christ, and the reinvention of work. Also in the house is Rupert Sheldrake, who is a celebrated biologist and author best known for his theory of morphic fields and morphic resonance, and its vision of a living, developing universe with its own inherent memory. His most recent book, Science Set Free, won the Book of the Year Award from the British Scientific and Medical Network. And these gentlemen together have co-authored a book called The Physics of Angels, where they explore the the merging worlds of science, angels, spirituality, and theology. Good morning, gentlemen. Thanks for joining us. Or good morning from America, I should say. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, I am. Uh, let's just jump right in here. Why are uh, a scientist and a theologian talking about angels in the 21st century? Well, let me answer for myself as a scientist. Um, I think that as we move beyond the materialistic picture of the universe that's dominated science for so long, as we come into a post-materialist, more holistic view, we see the whole universe as alive. Uh, the whole cosmos is growing, developing, expanding like a gigantic organism. And so are the, star, the galaxies within it and the stars within it are self-organizing. And um, some people, including me, think they may well be conscious. That means that we're living in a universe with many kinds of consciousness beyond and possibly above the human level, not yet at the divine, but uh, between uh, humans and God. And... I got interested in this from the point of view of modern cosmology and consciousness in nature. Um, And then I realized that um, there's a long tradition in the West and everywhere else of the idea of intelligences or conscious beings between the human and the divine, and in the West they're called the angels. So when uh, the opportunity to discuss this with Matthew Fox came up, um, I was delighted. Matthew? Well, first of all, I think that um, what Rupert has said is um, is uh, uh, part of my motivation that he has a very um, exciting and uh, 
large cosmic um, understanding of the potential of uh, these consciousnesses that we traditionally call angels in the Native American tradition they call spirits. And um, so I knew I would learn something, learn a lot uh, by dialoguing with Rupert about this. As I recall, um, when we originally talked about angels publicly, um, uh, it, was, it was just part of a larger um, menu that we had. But afterwards, a lot of people come up and said, hey, you guys should talk more about angels. You should write a book on it or something like that. So um, it, it was clear that from people in the audience, they were interested in hearing science and and spirituality uh, dialogue about about angels. And of course, we should be, because uh, these spirit beings are of great um, significance uh, and uh, both personally and in terms of the greater picture of, of creation itself. So I, my spiritual tradition that I've been uh, recovering for decades is called creation spirituality. And uh, the whole question about consciousness in creation, as Rupert says, is a, is a frontline and hot question today. And as he points out, our traditions have something to say about this. So let's go into greater depth and uh, uh, learn what they're uh, saying. Well, so I, I agree I'm with you because uh, so many people that I encounter in, in practice and in, in the groups that I uh, work with, you know, talk about religion as something that they can't quite uh, get their hands on, that, uh, that, they're, that they are pragmatic people, that they are, have scientific minds, and they know there's something. They know there, is, there are great mysteries out there in the world, as Einstein once says, can't be solved by a mat- mathematical equation. But the conversation is ripe to be explored because how do we define angels? How do we? How do they learn? How do we learn from them? Mm-hmm. Well, um, our methodology in our discussions in this book is to take three um, uh, theological giants who've put real effort into discussing angels: uh, Dennis Ariapagite, a sixth-century. Syrian monk, uh, Thomas Aquinas, a 13th century Catholic uh, Christian theologian and saint, and then St. Hildegard of Bingen, a 12th century abbess and uh, a brilliant woman. All three of them have a lot to say about angels, so we, we took out what they talk about, and then we did dialogues on, on their um, the points they make. And one of the points you asked about knowing, one of the points that Aquinas makes is that angels learn exclusively by intuition. So I think it's very interesting. It means they don't go to school, they don't write books, they don't do research, they get it all through intuition. What that means to me is that as we develop our intuition, and I think another word for intuition is mysticism, as we develop our mysticism, we will encounter more muses or angelic spirits. Uh, consciousness gets expanded that way. And so just that one insight from Thomas Aquinas, I think, speaks to one of your questions there, that about how angels know and why it's relevant to us. Now, I'm sure Rupert um, wants to jump in on this question as well. Well, the key factor, I think, about angels is that they're, they're beings with consciousness. Um, they're not unconscious. They're not... Um, um, they're, they're, they're not the entire universe. They're limited beings with consciousness. They're not beings with wings. They can be seen by people in all sorts of forms, but that doesn't mean to say that they're flying around in the air with wings like angels in stained glass windows. We may see them that way. Uh, we may interpret what, uh, them in, in that way, but um, I think it's highly unlikely that most of the cosmic angels governing the entire universe and the stars and the planets look like anything in a stained glass window. Um, that's a way of expressing the fact they can move and travel and move freely um, like birds can. Um, I think that they're um, looking after various aspects of nature. Some angels are looking after entire galaxies. Some are looking after stars. Others looking after planets. And here on Earth, some of the angels are looking after whole continents or regions of the Earth. Others looking after more limited regions. Others looking after groups of people. And then, of course, there's always the tradition um, that each of us has our own individual guardian angel. 
but they're just one part of a much larger uh, view of conscious beings that are involved in regulating, controlling, and uh, being responsible for the creativity within the cosmos. Would you say that angels are the, the, the souls or spirits of departed ones, or they are uh, entities unto themselves? Well, the tradition is that the entities in themselves, that they preceded um, the human race. But at the same time, I believe some ancestors um, uh, can be angels. Some spirits um, go into that, that, uh, that realm, but not all. That's how I see it. Yes. Well, I, 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 see, I see that too. I mean, the, the, the tradition is that they, they are independent beings. They're not just deceased humans. And the important point about these great authors on angels, Dionysius, the Areopagite, and particularly, and St. Thomas Aquinas, is that they're emphasizing how cosmic the angels are. They're not just about humans. They're not just about us. And they're not just about the earth. They're about the whole of the universe and the heavens, the sky. Um, and we wouldn't really expect departed humans to be out there regulating distant galaxies, um, even if they'd been astronomers when alive. Um, so I think we, we have to see, um, you know, that there's this much bigger dimension to angels. And that's one of the points of our book. That's why we call it the physics of angels. We're not... Uh, we're, we're dealing with the the the, uh, the big picture, not because particularly just because we're into this, but because the main authors on angels, Dionysius, the Areopagite, Aquinas, and Hildegard of Bingen, have all had this really big picture, and so do other traditions where angels appear, like in the Hindu tradition of devas, and um, in Islam and Judaism, angels also play this very important role. And remember, we could. We have committed, I think, reductionism on angels. We've turned them into little bare-bottom bambino cherubs uh, during the Baroque era. And uh, also, as, as Rupert hinted, uh, we've turned them into guardian angels who, who, who um, help little old ladies across the street or something. Uh, again, that's very anthropocentric. It's narcissistic. And you pointed out, Lisa, in your introduction that you're tradition is not narcissistic but i think it is narcissistic to reduce them to just being our little helpers uh, i think that what what um what we're talking about this cosmic dimension is not is important not only to talk about angels but to reset what religion itself means uh for example the tradition is that angels are present at worship but if worship is, has been reduced to merely turning pages to find some written prayer that someone, some committee has put on a page, um, that's pretty reductionistic, too. And uh, it doesn't really open the heart, mind, and consciousness uh, to its, its full potential. So um, there are many implications of uh, going beyond the reductionism and the anthropocentrizing of angels in their duties. And I I think this brings up a very good point of um, the concept of modern worship and where we Time. can connect with something that is greater than ourselves, where we can connect with these other levels of consciousness, um, albeit in a group setting or uh, in a very independent and quiet setting. We are going to um, go to a break, and when we come back, I would love to touch upon this subject of contemporary worship with our guests today. To learn more, visit matthewfox.org and sheldrake.org. On Facebook, they are Rev Dr. Matthew Fox, and the abbreviation is R-E-V, period, D-R, period, Matthew Fox, and Rupert Sheldrake, Sheldrake. And on Twitter, it is FCS Creation, S-P-I-R, and Rupert Sheldrake. Here come those tunes. We'll be right back. We know that life is tough and that happiness can and does live along with adversity. We'll be right back to explain how on Harvesting Happiness with Lisa Cypress Kamen on Toginet.com. Like us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and on Twitter at HH Talk Radio. Lisa returns with more of Harvesting Happiness following this short break. 
Do you like Lisa's take on happiness, well-being, and human flourishing? Join us this spring as Harvesting Happiness launches online classroom programming where Lisa Cypress-Kamen will offer her workshop series across the globe and from the comfort of wherever you are. Visit HarvestingHappiness.com for more details. Be a part of the grateful good. Grateful Nation brings together patients, families, friends, and staff of Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center to support the quality care and groundbreaking research at the Medical Center. Through new and traditional media, members of Grateful Nation share experiences, thank our caregivers and researchers, participate in sweepstakes, and gather to sponsor and host events and much more. Being grateful inspires others to be grateful as well. Isn't it time we jumpstart some perpetual gratitude? Visit Grateful Nation online to find out more at www.gratefulnation.org. Have a grateful day. Welcome back to Harvesting Happiness with Lisa Cypress-Kamen on Toginet, the show dedicated to promoting happiness because happiness is a choice and happiness can be cultivated and harvested. So let's get back to it. It's Harvesting Happiness on Toginet.com. And now back to your host, Lisa Cypress-Kamen. Welcome back to Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio. If you're just joining us now, we are talking about the science of miracles and angels in our show today. And with me in the studio is Matthew Fox, who is an internationally acclaimed spiritual theologian, Episcopal priest, and activist, as well as Rupert Sheldrake, who is a celebrated biologist and author. And they have co-authored a book called The Physics of Angels, where we're talking today about the merging of spirituality and science to explain, define, and explore um, the greater picture about angels. So, gentlemen, prior to the break, we were talking about, we began to speak about this concept of contemporary worship. And I believe it was Matthew who had said that, um, that, in, in some instances, devotion and worship has come down to a page-turning practice and misses the point. Yes. The, uh, the tradition is that angels praise, and they love to uh, worship. Um, but angels bring a lot of um, music. Uh, many people who experience angels uh, say that music accompanies them when they, when they arrive. And... Um, uh, uh, there's a great energy of, of beauty and uh, luminosity and glory and light when people encounter angels. So this should be part of all of our worship as well. One project I've been involved in for 20 years, since I became an Episcopal priest, in fact, uh, is what we call the Cosmic Mass, which is an effort to bring more life back to Western uh, worship and liturgy through uh, elements of rave, such as dance, and DJ and VJ and rap and these new art forms, postmodern art forms, that allow us of, of many generations to um, praise in a, with all our body, with all our chakras. And I think um, I think angels like this because they don't want people um, uh, passive or bored or walking out the door when worship uh, comes around. I think they want energy and, and consciousness to be generated and expanded. And this is one way to do it. Now, of course, another way that angels uh, visit and is when we do pray and we go into meditation and quiet. And even uh, when artists are doing their creativity, they're often visited by angels. And we call these muses. But muse is really another word for angel. So there are many ways in which we can invoke uh, the angels, and they're eager to be invoked. There are many angels who don't have much work today because uh, humans are not invoking them. How do we connect and communicate with angels beyond what you've just described through, through music, through meditation, through communing? What are some other ways that an individual could say, all right, I want to explore this? I think one way is through um, the stars. I'm particularly keen on the idea of 
consciousness out there in the sky, because in the in the Middle Ages and in, among all traditional peoples, um, there's been the idea that when you look up in the sky, it's filled with the presence of God and with the stars have intelligences associated with them, uh, angelic intelligences, and the, the sky is heavily populated with conscious beings. And when we look at the stars, uh, we're looking at beings that could be, and I think are, conscious. Um, and they're relating to what happens here on Earth. They may be far away, but we can see them, and uh, they can at least see our sun, people, or, or any beings out there. Um, and for me, this, this aspect of living in this vast universe with these stars, these other, literally other worlds out there, uh, and all these beings out there is, is a part of getting our life into perspective. So I find going outside looking at the stars and being aware of the presence of intelligence and, and consciousness in the sky is an important um, uh, thing to do, and also to become aware of the sun and its role in our lives. Um, because I think these are ways of relating to these conscious beings at, at this far beyond the earth and human level. And as a scientist, I find this, the perspective of the whole cosmos as a very important part. You know, if, if God is concerned about humans, as I think he is, then um, he's also concerned about the entire cosmos and a religion that is confined simply to what's going on on Earth in one solar system, in one galaxy, um, is a rather provincial affair. And I think it's a very important part of the divine that is cosmic. And indeed, that's a big part of what Matthew was just talking about in his cosmic masses, which uh, do bring in pictures of galaxies and stars and, and, and this cosmic relevance of what's happening here on Earth. Mm. I'm just imagining, you know, I'm imagining standing under, you know, a magnificent night sky and my own experience with how connected I feel, both grounded to the earth and interconnected with the universe. And I think you make a very, very good point that it's also about as humans individually uh, making a commitment to see, feel and experience our place um, as being just a part of what's really going on out there. Exactly, yes. So important. Get perspective, like Rupert says. And does that invoke angels? Is that, is that process? Is that what you're suggesting are ways that begin to um, move the angelic energy, if you will? Well, I think they can. I think, you see, for me, for me I'm, I'm a practicing Christian. I like going to services, and I'm an, an Anglican, an Episcopalian. And I find many services here in England and indeed in America um, are actually quite moving and uplifting. I love the singing, and we have in our parish church in London, we have wonderful music, a really good choir, and superb organist, and all of that is very elevating, and worshipping and giving praise together is very important for me. Uh, but also important is being out in the natural world. I spend you know, at night under the stars, and by day um, I'm particularly keen on plants, so I spend quite a lot of time looking at plants and walking among trees and fields and woods. Um, and there, too, I feel that within the natural world there's a kind of guiding intelligence. I'm not talking about intelligent design, which is rather a mechanistic metaphor of a, an engineering god who designs the genes of animals and plants. Uh, in an evolving world, I think that there's a kind of intelligence underlying evolutionary creativity which is reflected in the plants and the animals we see around us. So I think that just appreciating the beauty of nature and what's there in nature and looking in detail at plants and animals, uh, we get a sense of an intelligence which I think ultimately has a kind of angelic source that's reflected in the beauty of the world that we directly experience outdoors. I think that's very well said. And um, just like Rupert said, that uh, the music and the singing is very uplifting for him in worship. So I would elaborate on that and say the, the, the wor our works of creativity, whether they be music or singing or painting or theater or dance or film or, or even birthing um, democracy or 
uh, educational forms that really work and don't oppress and so forth. You know, our, our human work of creativity is, I think, an angelic work. That is to say, we need to call on um, the angels. We need to call on uh, intelligences greater than our own. And many, many artists have that experience um, when they're, they're doing their art. Uh, this is not a minor thing. Many artists of many kinds, musicians, poets, others, painters, tell me that this is part of their work. And um, again, we have a special word for it, a muse. And I think that's important that there is a word in our vocabulary for this. Uh, so I think that the, the work of creativity, and then um, Rupert can speak to this, but one of the exciting insights I derived from our conversation on angels was his, his awareness that um, Darwin's right-hand man, who really um, uh, worked with him, a man named Wallace, uh, to, to discover the basic theory of evolution, um, they split Wallace and and Darwin split because Wallace felt angels were necessary to explain the process. And, and even the, the short term, relatively short term, in which a lot of the creativity occurred on the planet. Um, so uh, Rupert can speak to this, but I think this is very significant. Yes, it's, uh, the, the, the principle of evolution by natural selection was, of course, um, developed by Darwin, but it was equally developed by Alfred Russell Wallace, who was... Um, who came across it independently. So they're honored in the history of science as the co-discoverers of evolution by natural selection. Um, but whereas Darwin went on to become a rather pessimistic agnostic, um, Alfred Russell Wallace went on to reflect on how creativity worked in evolution. Um, and the conclusion, as Matt said, that it was actually guided, biological evolution guided by angels, that there are angels watching over different species and uh, orders of plants and animals and guiding their evolution. Well, it's a, an amazing view, really, and um, he put this forward in his last book, published in 1911. Um, but we don't hear much about Wallace's take on evolution compared with Darwin's, um, and yet he was just as distinguished as a scientist, and um, it shows that it's possible to have a view of evolution, to be a scientist, to be steeped in natural history. Wallace was one of the great naturalists of his generation. Um, and still to have a view that includes uh, these spiritual forces, these conscious intelligences in a view of nature. And you know what I add, too, when we talk about consciousness, it's not just about um, the mind or the intellect. It's also about love. Uh, Thomas Aquinas says, angels cannot help but love. So when we are on a path of love, it's very likely that we will uh, also be encountering uh, angelic consciousness, or we can call on it to assist us in that process of, of love. We have run out of time, but before we go, I want to share some contact information to learn more about the physics of angels. Please visit matthewfox.org, sheldrake.org, and on Facebook, the handles are Rev Dr. Matthew Fox and Rupert Sheldrake. The Twitter handles are FCS Creation. S-P-I-R, that's F-C-S Creation Spear, and Rupert Sheldrake. And here are a few thoughts before we part. Happiness is not a destination. It cannot be bought, sold, or traded. Happiness will never invite you to the party. Happiness simply comes down to a choice to show up each and every day in the world with passion, purpose, place, and meaning. Thanks for joining us on Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio. This is Lisa Cypress-Kamen and my amazing guest today, Dr. Bernie Siegel, Rupert Sheldrake, and Matthew Fox, wishing you kind thoughts, kinder words, and the kindest of actions. Until next time, remember, happiness is an inside job. Happiness is your inside job. And a big thanks to our producers who make us shine each and every week. You are our angels on earth, and we are grateful for you. Thanks for joining us on Harvesting Happiness Talk Radio with Lisa Cypress Kamen. Join us every Wednesday morning live at 10 to 11 Central Time here on Toginet Radio. 
Then harvest your own happiness anytime from the comfort of wherever you are with free downloadable podcasts available at iTunes. To learn more about Lisa's filmography, felicitation, and philanthropy, please visit HarvestingHappiness.com. Each week, Harvesting Happiness presents engaging trendsetters, exploring our world through science, art, medicine, media, music, philosophy, politics, and the human heart, whose perspectives on life are sure to inspire, provoke, and engage. Lisa's diverse guests are a proactive collection of the greatest thinkers and doers who have devoted their lives to creating a better world in which to live. Like Lisa says, happiness is an inside job. Happiness is your inside job. Spread more joy by liking us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and following us on Twitter at hashtag Harvesting Happiness. Then join us again next week at this same time on the Toginet Radio Network.